Wall Arts respectfully acknowledges the Kawishba Kawiakna, also known as Kawia Band of Indians, and all nine sovereign bands of Kawia people who have stewarded this land throughout the generations and continue to steward this land for all future generations. Idlewild Arts Foundation is proud to present One World, One Idlewild, the series, in conversation with Pamela Jordan. The series brings together thought leaders, creatives, influencers, and changemakers, highlighting the work of citizen artists whose careers and lives have been shaped by the transformative power of art. From Idlewild Arts Foundation in Idlewild, California, I'm Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. Today I'm speaking with Jason Patera, head of school at the Chicago Academy for the Arts, an internationally acclaimed, independent, art-focused high school in Chicago's River West neighborhood. Jason has been a part of the Chicago Academy community for more than 25 years, serving as an intern, faculty member, chair of the music department, assistant head of school, principal, and since June 2016, head of school. In 2001, Patera co-founded Caltera School, an award-winning music school whose alumni won more than $10 million in college scholarships and appeared on Letterman, Leno, and Kimmel, and performed and or toured with Kelly Clarkson, Maroon 5, Train, George Clinton, The Meters, and many, many more. A jazz pianist and drummer, Patera is a summa cum laude graduate of Berklee College of Music, where he studied arranging and contemporary writing and founded the college's newspaper, The Groove, now in its 25th year of publication. He also holds a master's degree in educational leadership and has been recognized by the U.S. Department of Education for Excellence in Teaching. Jason Patera is a Golden Apple Leader of Distinction and in 2018 was one of seven finalists for the Golden Apple Leadership Award. Jason is a published author, public speaker, and an avid endurance athlete. Well, Jason Patera, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'd like to start by expressing my condolences to you and your family. I know you lost your father um, due to COVID this year, and I'm very sorry to, to, to hear that. I, I, I knew your dad, and uh, he was very proud of you. <laughs> he... he, uh, he, he... He loved that he got to brag all the time about what I was doing at the school. And the man had a flair for the dramatic. So had he known what was going on, he would have loved that he went out with COVID. He would have loved that. <laughs> That's wonderful. He was, I know he was very, very supportive of your career. And I'm really sorry for, to hear about his passing. Well, in full disclosure, Jason, I've known you for many years. I actually think we met when you were 16. And that time could probably best be memorialized by the photographs of you with a ponytail down your back and you having aspirations of being a rock and roll drummer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as, as arts leaders, we, we see kids come and apply to our schools all the time and they have to know that they are an artist when they apply. We don't tell them that they are. How did you know you wanted to be a musician when you were young? Honestly, it, it, I don't think it ever occurred to me to be anything else. And, and I'm glad that you brought up my dad. My dad was a musician. He, he wasn't a professional, but he was a world-class singer. My mom was a, a deep lover of music, so there was always music going on in the house. I had an older brother, an older sister, and they listened 
to what was popular during the day. So, so it was just, I was surrounded by it my whole life. And my earliest memories are of me pounding on, on Fisher Price drums and getting my first drum set and having <laughs> the toy piano up. The only time I ever considered doing anything else, we, we uh, were one of the first families to get an Apple IIe desktop computer. And, and that year I got really into coding and writing my own games and all of that. And my father, in, in what turned out to be the worst advice, he told me, you know, these silly computers, th those games are all fun and whatnot, but they're toys. And, and if you want to go places, you're going to get into music. And I remember him saying, because people are always going to want a band at their wedding. So, so you'll always work if you're a musician. <laughs> and that was, that was the last time I ever thought about doing anything different. It, it never occurred to me that I might have a future in anything else besides the arts. Well, then, then that's a good segue. You, you decided to go to college. You know, you, you decided to study music in college. You chose Berkeley. You went in as a rock and roller and you came out a teacher. Talk about that journey and why you, why you chose teaching. Well, well, first of all, it is incorrect to say that I decided to go to college <laughs> because, Pam, you and I both know that you decided that I should go to college. To our listeners, Pam was the head of the Chicago Academy for the Arts the first time that I wandered in there. I think, Pam, maybe your title was principal or something like that, and, and maybe Frank was, was head of school or something like that. And I wandered in there, and, and you, just, you just pretended to see something in me and decided that you were going to be my mentor. I'm 16, 17, 18 years old, ditching school every day, showing up at the academy. It never occurred to me to enroll. Um, and one day, one day you sat me down and you said, you know, you're, you're a teacher. I remember this conversation so clearly. You said, you're a teacher. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to be a rock star. And you said, no, nah, you're a teacher. You're going to apply to college. And when you get your degree, you're going to come back here and teach. And that's exactly what happened. That's a, I, I applied to Berkeley. It was the only school that I applied to. Um, I, I ended up getting my degree, and I remember calling you the summer before I was graduating saying, okay, remember, remember you told me you'd give me a job? Did you, did you mean that? Because I really want to be a teacher. And the, the change for me, I had always wanted to be a professional performer. That was so important to me to make music in front of audiences and connect with audiences in, in that way. What I discovered, though, what I really was after was that connection, that ability to connect with people. And I believe strongly that anyone playing music at any level can have a personally transformative experience. But only certain performers can, can transform their audience. And once I got a taste of what it felt like in the classroom and a taste of that experience to transform that audience, to transform the people in that room, I never had that experience performing before, and it was magical what it felt like to connect with a student. And, and once I started doing that, all other pursuits faded into the background. I didn't want to do anything else besides be a teacher. And I started at the academy three days after graduating, and, and I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that's, that, that journey is interesting, and that experience, you know, here at Idlewild Arts, we... We, our mission is changing lives through the transformative power of art. And you, do, you really do experience that. And I think in working with young people, um, especially, and they come in, 
they think they have tunnel vision toward what they want to do. But you really do see so many talents and, and interest in them. And it's not for us to tell them, but you do encourage them toward directing the play or something like that because you really can see that in them. And I guess that's what I saw in you. I was going to be okay with the ponytail down your back and you wanting to be a rock and roll drummer. Um, but I, I definitely saw you connecting with people um, and not just the students, the adults when I would walk donors through, you know, and so I could see what would take you into the classroom. But once you started teaching, once you, you, you got a job three days after you graduated, one thing that I was always impressed with about you uh, in your classroom, I remember that you used to put an alcohol-related fact on your blackboard uh, every day. You started every class with that. And, um, and, the, and the students would just know it. And I know you were discouraging them from you know substance abuse or using, using alcohol and drugs. Why did you choose that way? And what, what were you trying to get at other than, you know, don't do it? Yeah, that's the alcohol fact of the day. I remember that very clearly from my teaching. I, I won't get too deep into it, but I was surrounded by people who abused alcohol all of my life. And, and that affected me in very profound ways. As a non-drinker, you just notice how ubiquitous the messages to young people are about drinking and not just from the media but from adults too that I need to do this to relax or I need to do this to be creative or I need to do this to connect with other people I, I wanted to be that that person in their lives who modeled something differently one of the biggest revelations in my teaching career was realizing that my students were listening to me which was crazy because I never listened to any of my teachers, but, but they were listening to me and not just, not just the lesson of the day, but if I swore, they swore. If I had opinions about politics, they had those opinions about politics. So I thought, I'm going to use my superpowers for good. Then I would just put a fact up on the board every day. If they wanted to talk about it, great. If they didn't want to talk about it, great. Um, but it was there and they heard an adult and remember i was young and cool then i'm no longer young or cool but <laughs> but they had a young and cool adult in their lives every day just reminding them that not everybody does this even to this day and it's 20 years later now to this day when those alums come back that is almost always one of the first things that they say that they remember um your class was the best you still do the alcohol fact of the day and, and that means a lot to me. And they've confided in me in various ways about how important that was. So I look back on that and I'm, I'm glad that I did it and that I wasn't self-conscious about it. That's great. I'm glad that I, I was there to experience that as well. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit and uh, I'm very impressed that you are an endurance athlete. And I have a little tongue in cheek when I say that because I happen to know that you literally had to learn to swim in order to compete in your first triathlon. Um, so, uh, um, so it's very interesting. But one thing I do know about yourself, you, you take on challenges, you really don't back down from things that you want to explore. Why did you decide to get into competitive sports when it was the furthest thing from anything that I know you had experienced? Well, Pam, I think you're being you're being very generous in in that you you know me quite well, and everyone who 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 knows me, I'm not a graceful person. No one would think I'm an I'm a musician, <laughs> so the idea of me doing any sort of athletic thing boggles the the, the mind of a lot of people. I I had been overweight all of my life. Uh, I, 
and and overweight to the degree in high school that that the kids had particularly cruel nicknames for me and for as long as I can remember, I had been trying to lose five pounds all of my life. I needed to lose 100 pounds. I had been trying to lose five pounds all of my life, and I just kept failing over and over and over again. Every time, I'd end up gaining weight. And my mom, she was so sweet, she would say, let's just take small steps. Just try to, just try to lose five pounds. And, and, and that, she may as well have been saying, you know, break out of prison with a pencil eraser. I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. And I kept failing, and it was embarrassing. My goals were so small around losing weight that I was, I was afraid to say them out loud. And then one, one day, this is, this is 10 or 12 years ago now, I was, I was, it was between Christmas and New Year's. I had been gorging on food for days and days and days. And here I am, I'm probably 100 pounds overweight, disgusted with myself, getting ready for New Year's and thinking about New Year's resolutions. And here I go again. I'm going to try to lose five pounds again for the 30th straight year, and it's not going to work, and, and, and. and there was this show. They were interviewing some, some baseball players. They were interviewing uh, Kerry Wood from the pitcher of the Chicago Cubs. And, and it was some kind of winter convention thing. They're interviewing Kerry Wood in the locker room, and, and he's just wrapped in a towel, and he's just this, this picture of physical fitness. And I thought to myself, somebody is in charge of deciding what that guy eats. And it's not him. It's definitely not him. Somebody's in charge. The, guys get, guys get, guys get, the guy gets paid $10 million a year. Someone decides what he eats, and I bet I can find that person. And it literally took me 30 seconds on Google to figure out who Carrie Wood's pers personal dietitian was. I called her up the next day, and I said, look it, I'm a fat guy, I hate it. I hate myself, I hate the way I feel, I hate the way I look. I hate my goals. My goals are so small, they're embarrassing to say out loud. I said, I want to lose 100 pounds. I want to run 1,000 miles. And I'm just making this up on the phone. I want to run 1,000 <laughs> miles. And at the end of the 1,000 miles, I want to run back-to-back -back marathons. And on that day that I, that I run that marathon, I want to be at whatever the ideal weight for someone my height is. Now, before doctors had said to me all that stuff about, well, moderation, or you're fine, everything's fine, and I would say, look at, I am not fine. I'm going to have diabetes when I'm 50. I am not fine. But she works with athletes, and, and her response was, that sounds great. Come on in. It was 150 bucks an hour, which in retrospect was the best money I've ever spent. In six months, I lost all the weight. I ran the marathons. I became a runner, and, uh, and I, I was so interested in what endurance sports, how that shifted my mentality about things. So I ran the marathons, and then I thought, well, well, now I'm going to try a triathlon. And like you said, I had to learn how to swim to do the triathlon. And that turned into competing in Ironmans. And that turned into swimming across the San Francisco Bay. And that turned into 100-mile ultramarathons. And um, uh, it just became, it became a lifestyle. It, most of it's good, some of it. I mean, any, anyone who tries to run 100 miles is running from something. And I'll concede that, that that's a part of it as well. But it just became a part of my life. That's interesting to hear you say that. I remember when you were competing in some of those. I, I remember you swimming, I don't know, to Alcatraz or something. And you were my assistant head of school at the time. And I kept saying to you, you better not die. You better be back here to work on Monday morning. <laughs> You know what? Uh, you and Melissa Brooks, I still have this, but you and Melissa Brooks made a sign for me. You made two signs. 
One was a sign of a shark, and the other one was a big sign that said, don't die. <laughs> <laughs> Completely selfish. But you, but, you know, to go through that kind of training, to set that uh, intention uh, and, to, and to go toward it, that must have really uh, uh, influenced your thoughts on education now, how you work with students, and equally important, how you lead a school now. It really did. And, and that's the most important thing that I got out of it. That, that um, my takeaway and my mantra in doing, doing all those things is I can do hard things. I can do hard things. I can, I can swim across the San Francisco Bay. Surely I can walk into this meeting and move my agenda forward, right? I, uh, I can run for 30 hours without stopping. Surely I can, I can lead this group of people in this conversation in a certain way. Uh, it's definitely affected my, my views on education, particularly around young people, um, because it, it helped me understand that most of what we think of our limits are not our limits. They're, they're illusions. And we, we spend all of our life, at least this was my experience, starting in, in early adolescence, learning what our what learning what my limits were and then reinforcing those limits over and over and over again i'm a fat guy i'm i'm this i'm that i'm that and endurance sports helped me realize that most of the time when we when we truly and methodically challenge our conception of our own limitations those limitations fade away and then that's where the good stuff happens on the other side of that we realize oh Oh, I can lead a school. Oh, I can raise this extraordinary amount of money. Oh, I can get this curriculum off the ground or, or whatever it is. And I think that's the same thing with young people, that schools accidentally become very good at teaching young people to believe in, in what their limits are. And I think schools should be the opposite. I think the most important thing we can do is help young people understand that that these things that they think are their limitations aren't at all. And we can shepherd them right up to that boundary and then, and then help them get past that. And whether they become artists or doctors or whatever they do, they can go forward in their lives knowing that they too, they can do hard things. But you're not saying everybody gets a trophy or, you know, you should in encourage, you know, every student because you too can be I don't know whatever it is. I used to say president, but I don't know if that's the thing to say. So, but so there's some there's some difference there, right? With the way you're saying to 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 face your limitations or know that you know don't don't allow someone to arbitrarily set those limitations for you. Yeah, I I and and let me be clear. I do not believe that everyone gets a trophy. Some people win and some people don't, and <laughs> there's no such thing as A for effort. Um, but when I when I got to shore on San Francisco Bay, the first time I swam across San Francisco Bay, and, and I come up on shore and I stand up on that beach and I turned around and I looked at the Golden Gate Bridge and I looked at Alcatraz miles in the distance through the, fall, uh, through the fog and thought about all of the decades that I had walked around feeling like my, my, my destiny is to be a fat guy who people laugh at when, when he tries to do something athletic. I thought, I just swam across the San Francisco Bay. What else you got for me? And, and that kind of moving forward in my life like that. Um, did I win? No, of course I didn't win. I didn't come remotely close to winning. But knowing that I can do those hard things affects how I, 
go into ordinary everyday situations and I can go into those situations with more courage or more bravery or understanding that failure doesn't kill me. And, and endurance sports teaches you a whole lot about failure too. It's very, especially for someone like me, cause I am not an athlete. You look at me when I run and you will say, how is it possible that you don't get hurt all the time? <laughs> uh, but, but so it's a humbling experience and, and it keeps me comfortable with that idea of failure too. So then I'm just not terrified of failing all the time. I can, I can face those things with, with more courage. And so that's what, when I think about education, I think part of our goal is to help people develop those skills too. Understand that what they think are their limits probably aren't. Understand what, where they think they're weak. They're probably not weak and understand that that bravery and courage and comfort with failure, these are, these are learnable things. And not just that you can learn them, but you probably should. I think schools can do, schools can do right by their students by helping them learn those things. You're listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We'll be right back. Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code OneWorld2021 to receive a $50 discount to the 2021 summer program. Quantities are limited. Restrictions apply. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts giving to make a gift today. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Jason Patera, head of school at the Chicago Academy for the Arts, an internationally acclaimed independent arts-focused high school in Chicago's River West neighborhood. So Jason, in September, I believe it was in 2019, you gave a TED Talk, uh, and I was very impressed with that. I think you sent me a text and said, be proud of me, and I was very proud of you. And I went back and listened to that uh, recently. The title of of your uh, presentation was Life at the Intersection of Excellence, Purpose, and Passion. I'm sure you were speaking to a room full of adults, and your advice is good for everyone. But how do you get teenagers to think about what it means to live your best life? That's a great question. So having the opportunity to, to do that talk was, was an incredible experience. And partly because the audience that day actually was 100 teenagers. And they had invited young people from all 50 wards of Chicago to be there in the audience. And they asked the speakers that day, to deliver a message that they thought would be appropriate for, for teenagers. So I very much had them in mind when I thought about this idea of living at that intersection of excellence and purpose and passion. 
Uh, I actually think it's easier to get teenagers to think boldly about their dreams. They're, they're not bitter yet. They don't, they don't think it's too late. You can convince a teenager that even if they've never picked up a camera, they can make films one day. You can convince a teenager that, sure, you can write an opera. You, you can get them to believe that. It's the adults that are the problem. Because the adults, once a week, I hear some adults say, well, I wish I could play music, but I just don't have any talent. And, and I think that's a bunch of crap that, that so, many, so many adults fall into this trap of you get past a certain age and you become resigned to the box that you live in. And then your goals that year tend to become not, they're not goals that would have inspired the 17-year-old self. You're saying, I, I, this year I resolved to get my taxes done on time and I'm going to declutter the garage. <laughs> but you suggest that they learn how to play guitar because they're, they're in awe of, of the students at the school. And they, they say, well, oh, I can't, I, I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm 45 or 55 or 65. I, I couldn't learn how to do that thing. So my goal with that message to young people is to help them resist that urge for as long as they can into their lives, as long as they can into adulthood, to, to constantly reach for the things that matter to them. Um, that doesn't mean that it's bad to want to get your taxes done on time. It doesn't mean that it's bad to wind up in middle management at a corporation somewhere. But I want people to wake up in the morning excited to get out of bed for something. And I want people to go to bed at night reluctantly because they're, they're involved in something that really lights them up. And going to bed is a compromise because, that they have to make so that they get the opportunity to do that again tomorrow. I think the earlier we can learn how magical that feels, the more likely young people do that into their lives. And with the message, do something really well that you care about deeply. And if you can parlay that into something that matters to you personally or to people collectively, even better. Don't let go of that. Don't, don't resign yourself. Don't think that that's something attainable to other people. It's not. In that same TED Talk, you spoke about what happens when students relentlessly pursue things that matter. Say more about that. I, I get nervous when schools overly focus on the practical things. And I think, okay, practical things are important. There are skills that we, we need to know to be relevant and useful and functional in our adult lives. But sometimes, sometimes schools do that uh, to the exclusion of what I'm calling the things that matter. And I, I, think, I think there's two sides of this. The, the first part of that is that personal meaning. Um, there is something really special when you look at yourself in the mirror every day and say, I believe in what I'm about to do today. Whatever that is, I get to lead a school and, and I can't imagine doing something else. But there are a thousand things that you could do where you can say, I, I believe in the work that I'm doing. My father, my father was a machinist and uh, later in his life. And he, 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 he didn't really enjoy it, but he knew that that he could look at the work with a lot of pride, knowing that that, worked, that work plugged into a bigger picture that he could see the results of, and, and that, that mattered a lot to him. And if we can take that and do something that affects other people, that makes other people's lives better, or more fulfilling, or more meaningful, or safer, or whatever that is, uh, that's good for everybody. And I think we need more people 
not only taking those kinds of steps, but believing that they can, believing that they can do things that make a difference. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Jason Patera. Jason is head of school at the Chicago Academy for the Arts, an internationally acclaimed, independent, arts-focused high school in Chicago's River West neighborhood. At Idlewild Arts, we believe that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts giving to make a gift today. We talk a lot about the value of an arts education, but when I hear you talk about it, it's also the value of an, of an, an arts community right that that you you weren't we don't talk about in these terms anymore we don't talk about young artists being misfits at least you know we certainly have moved away from that in the 80s and 90s the way we used to but still there's something that allows a young person to excel when they're in an environment where the, where the arts are a part of their everyday life like that what's your experience around that i think there's two things one thing is to me there's still a little bit of that if you're an artist, you're a little bit of a misfit. Maybe not the way it was 20 years ago, but um, there is a power in being surrounded by people who are excited about the same things you're excited about and that you don't have to convince everybody of why it's cool to be an actor or why it's cool to be a dancer or why you're really into jazz or opera or whatever that is. And, that creates that culture, the, the, the conditions necessary, I think, for people to thrive. The, the other part of that is young artists know what excellence means in a way that other young people studying other things don't know. And it's the, the arts are an incredible teacher because you can't fake it. You, you either know the Bach or you don't. <laughs> you, you either know your lines or you don't. You can either do, you can either execute the choreography or you can't. And if you can't, it is plainly obvious to everyone in the room. So the arts become this incredible uh, teacher of excellence. And when you're surrounded people who are committed to that path of excellence, you just can't help but try harder. You can't help but work harder and you can't help but work better and then learn what those results mean. If you become an artist, great. If you become an attorney, you know how to learn and you know how to be really good at it. If you become a doctor, you know how to learn. You know how to be, you know what, you know what excellence actually means. That's a powerful experience for any 16-year-old. And, and I'm, I'm so fortunate that I wandered into a school where even though I wasn't a student there, I got to learn about that firsthand. You know, when I, when I hear you um, talk about this, uh, and as I have just watched teachers and administrators throughout my career, you can tell people who started in the classroom, you know, so there were some years, especially following 2008, where um, schools hired, um, independent schools hired, you know, business leaders and people outside of education to come in and lead schools because schools were challenged financially. But you can really hear the passion of someone who has seen, you know, that light bulb go off in the, in, in the classroom or that breakthrough from that student. And especially as a teacher to have the benefit of years where they graduated and now they're adults, maybe they've started families. Um, you know, I know some of the alums uh, at, at Chicago Academy, of course, who have incredible lives uh, and, and careers, but 
you left the classroom and you went over to the administrative side, the dark side, as they say. And uh, I know for myself, it took, um, it took a while to understand how to make an impact as an administrator and especially as head of school. But you have your lane, right, when you're head of school. The best advice I got when I became head of school, uh, an experienced uh, head told me, the job you used to do, somebody else is doing that now. <laughs> you have a new job. So how, how do you, you know, with all that you're saying, and, and it's absolutely right, but how do you feel as, as the head of school, as an administrator to advance your institution, not just your classroom or the students who, who, who are assigned in your class this particular year? Oh, there's so much there. That's, that's, a, that's a big question. I think, to me, it, I don't think I can answer that question without first starting with talking about mentorship. And um, people ask me why I left the classroom to become an administrator, and I've got, I've got my public answer to that, and I've got my, my, my journalist answer for that. And I can say things like, like, I had done all I could in the music department, and I wanted to try to do for the whole school what I did for the music department, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Really, the reason, there are two reasons why I left the classroom is, one, when that job became available, I was terrified by what would happen if someone else took that job. Because the, the, the influence a senior level administrator has on culture and curriculum and people and mission and vision is huge. And having grown up in the place, I was very protective of that. And there's a limit to how much you can protect that from inside the classroom. So part of it was a sense of, of self-preservation of, I don't think anyone else understands what needs to be done in that role, but I do. And, and Pam, the other part of that, that is you told me to. <laughs> you, said, you said you got to leave the classroom. You got you to work your way into administration. And um, the... the the importance of your mentorship in my life in the whatever that was 15 years preceding that moment i would have done anything you told me to told me to do because i was able to see the impact of that mentorship so much on my life and learn to trust that and so taking that scary step stepping out of the thing that gave my life meaning that, that my whole identity was what I could get a group of teenagers to do in a classroom, to let that go and go into something where I knew I was stepping into enormous challenge of, of how, how do you get teachers to do stuff? That's a whole, whole, different, <laughs> a whole different thing. Um, but, uh, and, and, it, and it is different. It's, it's less of a performance sometimes. Um, uh, adults, like I said earlier, they, they have a whole lifetime worth of other things that they bring to the conversation other kinds of expertise, other experiences, a longer sense of what has worked and what didn't work, uh, a, a, whole new, a whole new set of fears and anxieties about how things may go. And as the leader of the school, you have to figure out on any given day, one, just how to make things go, but two, how do we, how do we move the needle on where we want to be a year from now or three years from now or five years from now? And, and that's the most challenging work, and that's the most exciting work. So I try to go into that with that spirit of thinking both what is, the, what is the big picture here, and how can I get excited about moving? And this is something you would say all the time. How do I move that needle forward just a little bit? And at the same time, create the conditions necessary 
for all of those teachers to have those same kind of mentorship moments with all of those students? How can I facilitate that? You know, one thing that I knew, you give me far too much credit, but uh, you know, I, I had aspirations of, of, of being an opera singer. Um, and little did I know that was just to get on the path that I'm on now and to be able to understand young people and, and the pursuit that, that they are in um, to become, be, become artists. But I remember, um, you know, I had a few private students and I had a student who uh, wanted to go to Chicago Academy for the Arts and I prepared her for that audition. And they wanted me to come and teach then. <laughs> After her audition, they had an opening for a, a vocal instructor. And I remember thinking, I, A, I don't think I want to have anything to do with the school. I want to go over here and sing. Uh, but I was intrigued. I was intrigued not only to stay with my students, um, but as I met others at the school, I was intrigued about it. And I remember reaching out to my sister and saying, I, I don't I don't know what to do. You know, I have a vocal performance degree, not, not music education. And my sister said, love them. Love them and love what you do and it'll all come. And that's the way I, I, I have tried to be as a mentor. When you see that in someone, there is no substitute for the love a teacher has for their students, period. You can't teach it. You can't instruct, <laughs> instruct the teacher to have it. It has to really be there. And when you talk about walking into that building and feeling that, um, then you know you have it. And the rest, the rest you can learn. The rest you can go to school. You can learn the nuts and bolts. But if you don't love, first love the students. And second, love, and I can't say that it's under, but love what you teach and why you teach it, why it matters to you. You can do anything in a school environment, and it's just been my my joy to encourage um, teachers uh, to go into administration and just continue along the path that they do. That that's exactly right, and and I'm realizing now. I tell I tell teachers that all the time, and I suppose I knew deep down that I'm just parroting you for that. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it, that's exactly right. You can you can learn about classroom management. You can learn about the new curriculum. You can learn about the new way to teach whatever it is. But but at the end of the day, if those students feel that love, they're more likely to listen. They're more likely to trust. They're more likely to be vulnerable. And in that space that's where you can change some kid's life. You, you, you're not going to change their life with, with standard 14C on page 17 of the curriculum manual, but you're going to change right. their life by them walking out of the classroom knowing that someone believes in them. That's, that's where the special stuff happens. And I know we're running out of time, but I just have to ask you this. Um, I love leadership. I, you know, now that I've had a, a, a career that's, that's getting pretty long, uh, I have come to learn that I really do love leadership. Not because you get to tell people what to do, because you don't. <laughs> you realize that if people don't do things, you have no control over that. But what you can do together and what you can do as a visionary um, uh, has just had a, an incredible impact on me in my career. What, so this is my question to you. What makes you know that you make a difference every day as head of school? I have the enormous privilege of walking through those doors every day knowing that someone's life is going to change that day. Every day. Every day that happens. Today is the 14th of December, 2020. There's someone at school right now. There's someone upstairs right now. They're going to look back on this day and they're going to say it was that day that my whole life changed. It was that day that I learned how to do 
this thing, or I learned how to believe in this thing, or I learned how to believe in myself, or I made the decision to, they're going to look back on that day, and it happens every single day in that community. And the reason I can say that with so much confidence is just how repeatedly they tell me 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. Um, I think that's part of the luxury about being in, in a community for so long, and I've been walking through those doors. It hurts to say this out loud sometimes, but I've been walking through those doors since 1992. So, so it's 28 years, and, and the frequency with which those students or even those teachers will contact me. I haven't, I haven't seen them in 20 years or 30 years, and they'll say, this is what the school did for me. And it's very rarely what got taught on the third Tuesday of March. It's very rarely that. It's what the community, it's what the community did for them. And they come back and they say this thing or that thing or this, this person mattered so much. Thank you for creating the conditions necessary to make that happen. And to me, it all comes down to the people. It all comes down to, it's not the facilities that changes anyone's life. It's not the curriculum that changes anyone's life. It's not the mission that changes anyone's life. It's the people that you're able to keep in, in the building, on the campus. And what I see our role as being is how do we get the right people? How do we create the conditions necessary for them to operate in their wheelhouse? And then how do we connect them with the right kids? And when, when that magic happens, those young people will spend the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years texting you on some random Thursday in July saying, oh my God, I know we haven't seen each other in 20 years, but I want to show you what I'm doing right now. Be proud of me. Just before we wrap up, I'm going to acknowledge that we're, we're in this health pandemic. It's been really <laughs> strange for schools and students just everywhere, all over the world. Um, but surely in the midst of all these challenges, uh, some good things have come. So what do you think your students have learned in this environment that they can carry forward when this pandemic is over? Oh, so many things, so many things. I think the most important one is, is this idea that we can't get too used to thinking everything's all set. We've, we've got our solid ground and we can cling to the solid ground and there's such a thing as normal and let's just get back to normal as soon as we can because once things are normal, then we'll, we'll all feel better. I think our students are learning how to not just exist, but how to thrive in uncertainty. And, and I believe that if you, can, if you can learn how to thrive in uncertainty, you're, you're going to suffer less throughout your life but you're also going to be well prepared for what comes next because there's, I think there's no real reason to think that times are going to get more certain in the years ahead. So they're learning how to thrive. They're, they're learning how to navigate the shifting sands of not just the pandemic, but the politics and the economics around that. And they're realizing that they don't need to be in a situation where all the details are sorted out they don't need to be in a situation where everything is planned out to the nth degree uh, in order to learn, in order to excel, in order to feel excited about what they're doing. And they're making great work, and I'm sure it's like this at your school too. They are making outstanding work in the context of historic uncertainty. They're going to come out the other side feeling like, all right, what do we got next? I'm ready. 
Very well said, Jason Patera. Thank you so, so very much for this conversation. I just loved it. Thank you, Pam. I, I love talking with you today and every day and, uh, and for all that you did to make sure that I'm in this position today. Thank you for that too. My guest today was Jason Patera, head of school at the Chicago Academy for the Arts, an internationally acclaimed, independent, arts-focused high school in Chicago's River West neighborhood. I spoke with Jason via Zoom on December 14th, 2020. We'll be right back with my next guest, Asul Serrano, a senior in the creative writing department at Idlewild Arts Academy. Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code OneWorld2021 to receive a $50 discount to the 2021 summer program. Quantities are limited. Restrictions apply. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts giving to make a gift today. From Idlewild Arts Foundation in Idlewild, California, I'm Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. I'm speaking now with the young writer, Asul Serrano, a senior in the creative writing department at Idlewild Arts Academy. Born and raised in Mexico, Asul's family moved to Baja California Sur in 2019 when the economic crisis forced them to leave their home. Asul is a poet and mainly focuses on cultural and Mexican fiction. Her goal in writing is for people to relate and hold on to who they really are. Her inspiration comes from Latin American writers such as Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Octavio Paz. Asul has received accolades for her work, including two honorable mentions from the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards, the nation's longest running and most prestigious scholarship and recognition program for young artists and writers in grades seven through 12. Asul will graduate in May, 2021, and she plans to pursue a career in the medical field. Asul Serrano, thank you so much for speaking with me today. How did I do on your name? You're good, you're good. <laughs> I want to flip my R's and get it just right. Thank you so much for, for speaking with me. Um, I've learned a little bit about your background and I want to start right from the beginning because I understand that you had some very serious health, serious health challenges when you were young. In fact, it wasn't that you almost died when you were born. It was that they didn't think you would breathe when you were born. Tell me about your, your story. So yeah, um... I'm being told that I couldn't breathe for around 20 minutes when I was born. I was born basically dead. Um, but when my mom was praying and she stopped, I suddenly started breathing um, after every doctor gave up on me. 
uh, after that, um, they told my parents that I was not going to leave farther than six years. That was like the best chance I could get. If I lived more than six years, I would have several health issues or some kind of retardation because of those 20 minutes without oxygen. Um, so most of my childhood, I was in hospitals all around trying to figure out what was wrong with me because my lungs didn't work well. And I had a lot of other illnesses on my skin um, and my immune system. And it was a harsh childhood, but when I turned 12, everything changed. I was treated um, for allergies, um, for my lungs to get better. Um, and I eventually got to live a normal life. And I'm grateful for that. Um, my parents are thrilled by, it's been 18 years and I'm here, so. That's such a special story and uh, clearly, clearly special parents. I can, as you were just talking, just see your mother just praying, praying to God that, that you would be okay, not just for that moment, but like you said, it's been 18 years. So when you, um, you, you, you talked about it being kind of rough, what role did, did writing or reading and writing, tell me how you came to, to want to write. Um, I started with like my health issues and also mixing it with a little of the economic crisis we were going through. Um, I started to explore different kinds of art to see, to find myself in, in there. Um, I found writing as a place that I could be myself and shout in a notebook. Um, I found a safe place on writing. I could give all of me to writing and it would keep it a secret. It would be just me and my words and it would be a space where I could say anything and don't get hurt um, or where I could put all my feelings into because after all those years in hospitals and being around doctors and my parents, they were so worried about my health that like I didn't have anyone to lean to emotionally, like because being treated as a guinea pig for many years does not treat good as a child, does not treat, does not, um, it affects you as a child. And you get alone, you get lonely, and you start to find yourself when you realized all that you've been through. And now that you're good and you're alive, you wonder who you are and why you're in this world. Because if you went through all that, it must be for one reason. And when I started writing, something light up in my head. Um, it was like I was meant to write my story down and let the world know. Well, you certainly uh, committed to that and got very good at it. Um, and you applied to Idlewild Arts. And uh, I understand that when you applied, you submitted um, the, the, the startings of a novel. So you not only got in, you got a scholarship. So obviously you poured yourself into it. Uh, it was very authentic. It's not easy to be accepted into Idlewild Arts. Um, so did you ever finish the novel? That's one thing I wanted to know. I did. I finished the novel here. 
um, Kim Henderson, the head of recreative writing department, helped me with that. Um, it was a challenge because I wrote the novel originally in Spanish. I had to translate the whole thing in English to get into Iowa arts. Um, I did that in within two weeks because I was in a rush. I wanted to get in. Wow. I was so excited. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, she helped me finishing the novel. It was amazing how I could share my writing with other writers, how she managed to understand the whole world in a whole book that was just in my head. Um, it was an amazing process. I really enjoy it. Well, you're a very powerful writer, and I know that you want people in, in reading your writing to really know who they are. I've, I've come across a few pieces that you uh, have done, and it's one that I really would, would love for you to read for our listeners. Uh, it's called After Diego and the Two Fridas. Is that right? Did I get the title right? Um, before, you, before you read it, though, would you tell us about this poem and why you wrote it? Well, um, as in a normal poetry class, you learn about many types of poem. Um, this synaphrastic poem uh, talks about a piece of art. I, I was never a fan of Frida Kahlo until earlier on. Um, her art suddenly, I found myself in her art for some reason. Um, her suffering and her pain that she transmitted through her paintings felt completely like myself when I was a child. Like I could relate with that iron um, throat she had, like all the pain she suffered, being in bed and all that. Um, so this is not the first poem I write about her, um, but I'm writing a series about her because her work is amazing. I wrote this um, more as like a, a biography of her and Diego because I've been researching a lot about her, about her life. And it was really interesting how she fell in love and she gave his heart to this man. And somehow he didn't preserve it right. He didn't treat her well sometimes. Um, and he always put himself first, but she became a queen of art and we all know her in this world. Great, then let's, ha let's have you read it. Okay. After Diego and the two Fridays. I am sorry for your loss for your divorce. I write to you this letter in grief, mourning the last breath of the interconnected IB from the two Frida's heart, pumping wine out of her chest just to maintain still working organs alive. Diego, atheist, Oya de Barro, never loved a woman enough. I hope that your luck in the limbo Sicted in cacti, surrounded by a labyrinth of your own painted gannets. Frida, your own body, redet to the earth, the slave of your broken bones, tied to the copper bars of your bed. You printed passion and pain with your own blood, novia y tewana, for yourself, for your husband, a snail devouring the death of your sight, while your eyebrows build a bridge between your neurons to create a new transcendental football with paint stains and a cloudy canvas. Thank you, it's just beautiful. And I found myself as you were reading it that I, I suddenly wanted you to read it in, in, in Spanish. 
I wouldn't understand it then, but but it's just it's just so beautiful. And I did have an opportunity to see Frida Kahlo's work uh, when I was in Budapest one time, and and I think that's why I was really drawn um, to this poem. You know, I I'm I'm wondering what do you have a certain process for writing? You know, do you come to it? I don't know. Do you write on the back of a napkin a lot, and then you collect the napkins and you make it something? What's your process? Yeah. Um... Being a writer is definitely a challenge because it's not like you can just sit down and write whatever it's on your mind. You need to have some kind of inspiration and that inspiration sometimes comes out of nowhere in whatever you are. Um, you see this couple argument or you see this painting in a restaurant and you suddenly have a great idea about a play, a script, poem, a story. Um, I have several napkins with <laughs> poems at the back because um, you never know like my phone is uh, my, my phone it's like full with all these like little poet lines that I came up with well I'm writing in the car or I'm just walking around or I just see this gorgeous tree here in Idlewild like you get your ideas out of nowhere so I usually write them down at the moment I get like that inspiration and let it sit for a few days, maybe even a few weeks or a few months, because you never know. Um, then you come back to them and you try to come back to the moment. Um, if I was listening to a certain um, song or sound, I try to recreate that in my own space. And I sit in silence and start writing. Um, think about all the little things in that moment, um, all the smells, the, how you felt, um, all that contributes to a great poem. And sometimes I even cry because you get so into your writing that is so powerful. Are you usually exploring a certain theme or you know, is there something you, that you're mainly drawn to? Yes. I. I am a love poet, so. And what and what do you mean by that? I write a lot of love poems in every sense of the word. Like, um, I'm not a cheesy love poet, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I don't write poems about happiness, but like poems about how love can be painful and can like, bring even death, like you never know. Um, so I always admire how people love each other and end up destroying themselves somehow all the time. Um, so everyone in the creative writing department can tell you this. All my poems, most of them are about love. Um, even this one from Frida and Diego, like it was about the love they had each other and about the love she had in her paintings. Well, I and now that you say it, as I as I hear some of your your works and see many of your writings, I I understand that now. I understand what you're saying, and it, it also puts the one that you read in a little different light. Really thinking much more about the relationship, about the marriage. Um, well, I think our listeners will be surprised to hear. So you're graduating in May this year, but you're not going on to be a writer necessarily. Uh, what are your plans after high school? Um. I think lots of my life experiences have 
changed my decision in being a writer. Um, I wanted to pursue a medical career, being a scientist, um, try to help kids like myself to have a better life and to all those illnesses that have no cure at this moment, I want to contribute to that because I know lots of people suffer. I was one of them and I want to help them as what, however I can. That's really what I'm passionate about right now. And for sure, I want to keep writing because that's, that's my passion. That's what I would always love to do. That's what my heart will always be drawn to. And if I don't write scientific articles, I'm gonna keep writing my feelings out to the world <laughs> and to keep writing those little moments in life that just make life worth it. It's so special. You know, I, I, I always think that an education in the arts, an arts education should really expand your opportunities, not limit them. And everything you're talking about, everything you're doing, your commitment, your passion, um, it really speaks to that. So you have, you selected your college. I know that, that uh, you know, acceptances are just coming in, but do you know what college you'll be going to next year? I plan to attend Roy Hampton College in London. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'm thrilled, excited. That's great. Well, I know that you are going to be uh, an outstanding student wherever you go. They're going to be very lucky to have you. And I can't wait to see what you do as, a, as an alumna of Idlewild Arts Academy. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. My guest today was Asul Serrano, a senior in the creative writing department at Idlewild Arts Academy. I spoke with Asul via Zoom on March 7th, 2021. Join me next time when my guest is Rebecca Chu, founding principal of School of the Arts, Singapore. Rebecca and I speak about the role that art now plays in the educational system in Singapore and what the arts are teaching tomorrow's generation of leaders in her country. I also speak with Marie Catherine Payen about growing up in a biracial family in Haiti and the lessons she has learned from watching her mother work with Beyond Borders, a nonprofit organization committed to ending child slavery and preventing violence against women and girls in Haiti and the United States. I hope you will join us. Thank you for listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series, a creation and production of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Executive produced by me, Pamela Jordan. Directed and produced by Rose Colella. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Justin Holmes. Graphic design by Mark Biley. Marketing and publicity by Wendy Winks. Marketing assistance by Rose Colella, Andrew Edwards, and Nick Ryan. Production and research assistance by Keith Miller. Creative consultation by Palencia Turner. Production support by Marianne Kent Stoll. Technical support by John Lawrence, Michael Quick, and Tom Wadbrook. Our theme song is Beaconing. It was composed and performed by the incomparable Marshall Hawkins.
Pamela Jordan was appointed president of Idlewild Arts Foundation in 2014. Prior to this position, she held the distinction of being the first female and first African-American head of school of the Chicago Academy for the Arts, where she held the position for 12 years. She currently serves on the boards of the California Association of Independent Schools, the Association of Boarding Schools, and Art Schools Network, and is on the Global Education Advisory Council for Shanghai Huer Collegiate School Kansha. One World, One Idlewild, the series, is a product of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Any use of materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of Idlewild Arts Foundation, is strictly prohibited.